0: This is a podcast from 3RR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hello. Welcome to Radio Therapy. What happened to that little slider there? Now, recovering from the US election hasn't been easy. So today on the show, we'll be looking at medicine through the eyes of a US pollster. That is, certainties may or may not be true. And even if they are, there's a 10% margin of error. Now, closer to home, we have much more important things to talk about than the US elections. Did you know that World Diabetes Day is coming up tomorrow? If you think you know everything about the disease, then you are wrong, because the research landscape is changing incredibly quickly. Here to tell us about the latest developments in diabetes, we have Professor Peter Coleman. He's Director of Diabetes and Endocrinology at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Joining him is Gordon Bunyan, who has been involved in community support, advocacy, and coincidentally, he happens to have diabetes himself. It's sure to be a great couple of segments on what is a very prevalent disorder. Now, a lot of people have the notion that doctors enjoy the high life, jet-setting to fabulous European locations, competing in royal tennis competitions in London, taking the weekend off to go dancing with 20 of your best friends in a villa in the Yarra Valley. Ha! Dr. Nick says, ha, to that. It's 40 friends. Just where does he find the time to bone up on the latest research and be one of those GPs whose patients just love? Hmm. Today, Dr. Nick will be covering the shingles vaccine, or varicella, as it's otherwise known. What is it? Do I need it? How much will it cost and the rest? Nick knows, and he'll be telling and the person who puts 96.25% of the show together, EpiPen, <laughs> will begin to tell us a little bit about antibiotic resistance. You think it doesn't affect you? Ha, you're wrong, because it does. And Epi will prove it. So kick back and relax for the next hour of non commercial medicine. You are with Melbourne's very own radiotherapy. Good morning, EpiPen. Good morning, Dr. Mal. Nice to have you in the studio. And sitting about two inches to your left is uh, Dr. Nick. A very excited, Dr. Nick. Why?
1: Woke up this morning to discover we had six medical students in the house. Six? <laughs> what are you, renting out some rooms?
2: <laughs> They're breeding. Because
1: <laughs> <laughs> both daughters were there plus a whole gaggle of their friends.
0: Uh, we had a very interesting bre- breakfast bacon and eggs. I'm not sure if I'd be excited about having six medical students in my house. Don't they like, you know... Get you know what do they don't they have like wild parties and they, they do that wonderful mix of wild
1: parties and very intelligent
0: conversation. Oh, what it, so, actually what did you talk about this morning then over bacon and eggs with your with your children and their friends. Um, there's they're the morning ones who chat away and are
1: all bright and sparky, and then the others who are still looking a little bit seedy who are clutching a cup of tea <laughs> and remaining
0: mute. <laughs> <laughs> your household is so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: now, uh, uh, Mal, Mal. Yeah. You didn't say anything about last month's program. Last month's program. Hang about. Yeah, you nearly lost your job. Oh, that's right.
0: You were on instead of me. Yeah, I know. I was getting calls. <laughs> <laughs> well, Where were you? Oh, she was fantastic. She was fantastic. You did a fantastic job, by the way. Penny, mm-hmm. I, I am. I've got my hand. EpiPen. I've got my. Pan, I've got my hand over my heart, as you can see. Um, I actually had tears in my eyes during that segment. That. Uh, uh, with uh, the mother of the uh, the young man in ICU. It was so moving. Really, really fantastic uh, story that she told and she told it so well and yeah, well Thank done. You. Thank you. Thank you. Now EpiPen, tell us about uh, World Antibiotic Day, week, month, year? Week.
2: Week, week. yeah. Um, so it's uh, coming up yeah. It's on Monday, to the so the 14th to the 20th, and it's a, a WH World Antibiotic Awareness Week. In particular, in Australia, we are focusing on lots of... There's lots of handouts, and there's lots of interest in really getting people aware about resistance in particular, and I'd love to have somebody to talk about this, um, an expert from the ID community. And I know Dr Nick right next yeah, to me. Yeah, he's, he's a super expert. He's a super expert as well, because he's at the coalface prescribing it.
0: And He's on the committee, all the committees and stuff, isn't he? Is he? Yeah, he's nodding for radio. Yeah, he is. Yeah.
2: Oh, he's got a finger in every pie. I can't. So why should I give a stuff about antibiotic resistance? I mean, really? Because it's been classified as one of the biggest health, global health. Problems uh, face that we're facing. So, why do you worry about it? Because if you, Rob, go or Mal, go into hospital with an infection and you happen to be having have one that's uh, antibiotic resistant, yeah, we might not be able to treat you. It could be a pneumonia. It could be you could have TB. You could have gonorrhea. Well, unlikely, but you know, <laughs> for an example, and we, it's you could be in for a hospital for a very long time. You might not recover.
0: Let, let me just get this right. In the twenty first century, there are infections which we don't have uh, the medications to
2: treat. Correct. That so, is there's unbelievable. There is natural Serious resistance, resistance. Yeah. so the bugs are getting uh, naturally resistant to the antibiotics. And there is a whole heap of reasons why this is occurring. Will occur naturally, but we're using antibiotics. Uh, not very well in the community. So the prescribers aren't uh, being... Well, they used to be. I think they're much better now. Uh, Just really nearly giving antibiotics. And patients were asking for it. I've got a chest infection doc. You know, the antibiotics worked six months ago. I need them. And they've been given them. But I think that's been really cut down. So there's a whole heap of things. So I wanted to speak particularly about us as people, so what can we do? We yeah. can understand that there is a, a problem. We can, um, and even last night when I was doing my notes, I thought we can throw out old antibiotics that we've kept in the cupboard for <sighs> emergency use yeah. that we can give to yeah. our kids or relatives or. Yeah. So stockpiling That's a no-no. Mm-hmm. Out. Yeah. Out. Um, we can wash our hands a bit better. We can be aware of um, our hygiene so that, like, I know Dr. Nick's very careful about um, chopping up chicken on boards, oh, chopping yeah. boards. So yeah. there's a whole heap of things. What else have I got on my can list here? Yeah. You know,
0: ever since the campaign at the hospital at which I work, where hand-washing has, like, just been... Front and centre, and there are little uh, dispensers of soap and uh, high, uh, disinfectant kind on of every single you know, wall. I, now, even at home now, I'm washing my hands so much more often because the psychology is now I've got to be washing my hands. Cause Very you good. Think, well, like, like I used to think, you know, i tie up my shoelaces and then go grab something with my fingers. Now I'm thinking, hang on, shoelaces, floor, hospital, bugs, got to be washing.
2: Very good. So I hope maybe that's also a message for people coming into the hospital. Hang about. Yeah. We've all got to be, take this on board. I know Dr. Nick's going to have a uh, have a comment in a second. Um, There's steam coming out of his ears. Yeah. yeah. So, but also what the policymakers are doing is a big national campaign, and also in the hospitals <coughs> they have um, anti-microbial stewardships. So, well, it's a person and some ID physicians, so a pharmacist and an infectious diseases physician, and they monitor. They go around all the all the patients, review them, see that they're their antibiotics are appropriate, also that they've not been left on them um, by mistake. And this has been a really, really important um Thing that's so, so
0: what's happening for World Antibiotic Week? Are we having barbecues and parties? or the dancing in the streets? I mean, what do you do?
2: Um, you go onto the um, website for World Antibiotic Week and you, um, for GPs, you download the posters, put them in your patients' waiting rooms. You uh, talk about it. You put it on Facebook. You say, hey, let's not be flippant about wanting antibiotics. And I have to say, it's very, very hard to get them now from GPs. Over to you, Dr Nick.
1: so one of the things about uh, antibiotic resistance that was always difficult is that uh, saying to someone oh we should use fewer antibiotics because the whole world is becoming (coughs) resistant wasn't a very powerful argument for the individual who's got a streaming cold and snot coming out their nose and they're thinking, I want antibiotic. What we now know is for any individual who's given a course of antibiotic, there's a threefold chance that their own infections will become resistant to that antibiotic, and that lasts over the next six to 12 months. So a very powerful argument against the unnecessary or cavalier use of antibiotic for the individual. Can I just th- that when you really need this stuff, it may not work if you
0: take it when you don't need it. Can I just highlight that and... Uh, command be it bolded. You were saying that if you give me an antibiotic, there's a three, I've got a three times.
1: Two to three times increased chance of your bugs becoming, your own bugs becoming resistant to that antibiotic. So you develop meningitis six months later, we try and treat it with an ordinary penicillin. Doesn't work because we gave you that penicillin unnecessarily when you just had a cold. So this is a very potent argument for individuals to hang on to it. Don't use your antibiotics unless you really need it because it's about you personally. It's not just about the world.
0: What are some of the other things we can do to lessen the chance of antibiotic resistance? Throwing out old or expired antibiotics for sure. Taking your full course of antibiotics I imagine would be another thing.
1: Well, just when you say throwing it out, let's just keep in mind, don't chuck them down the toilet because that puts the antibiotic into the general supply. So when uh-huh. you want to, when you want to get rid of old medications, take them to a pharmacy, take them to a doctor for proper disposal. Do not chuck them down the Excellent. toilet. Absolutely, Very, rubbish very important. Pot. No, don't put them in the rubbish bin. Ah! No, because then again, they just get out into the community. They need to be properly disposed of. A doctor or a pharmacist will be very happy to dispose of your old medications. Okay. So don't just chuck them away. Um, one of, the, one of the things that always irritates me about us doctors is we, we always blame it on the patients. We say it's these terrible patients, they demand antibiotics, and mm. it's not our fault. They're not happy if they don't get them. There's heaps of research to show that that is simply not true. Mm. Um, and if doctors simply provide a good explanation of why someone doesn't need an antibiotic, people are actually smart enough to say, well, if I don't need it, I don't want to take it. Uh, doctors, in my view, and there's research to back this up, are a bit lazy about this. <laughs> it's just easier sometimes to write the script than to have the conversation. I'm going to get emails now. All of the research shows that a simple, brief conversation is effective and patients are not silly. They don't want to take drugs they don't need. So the urge to the doctors is smarten up your act, think about it a bit more carefully, have the conversation with your patients about why they may or may not need antibiotics and don't give them unnecessarily.
2: Mm-hmm. We're also forgetting the vets, so animal treatments. So we need the vets to be on board with this too because they give their pet, um, pets antibiotics. Ah, yep. dentists as well, I imagine? Not so commonly, but... Ah. yeah. Um, Nick, um, I'm
0: sure you'll have research to back this up. What, here we go. I'm going to ask you a, a uh, an untabled question. What proportion of patients complete a full course of antibiotics? I would have thought it wouldn't have been that high. Uh,
1: the question about completion of courses of antibiotics is actually a little bit vexed so yes it's a pretty simple question well it should be simple but uh, uh, we don't actually know whether you need to complete courses of antibiotics or not so that's really going to throw a few cats among a few pigeons (coughs) to give you a simple example we now use short courses for most simple urinary tract infections because we know you can get away with just three days treatment Probably most simple respiratory infections that are due to bacterial infection, um, treat until symptoms are better and then stop is fine. Really? Yes. But don't say that out in public because (laughs) it'll just confuse (laughs) (laughs) everybody. Don't tell anybody. So we've had meetings about this and we've decided not to put that as a formal recommendation because it's too confusing. Uh, We're just speaking about on
0: Triple R.
2: (laughs) Okay, just one quiz question. Who knows who are the biggest countries or the countries that prescribe antibiotics the most?
0: Per capita i'm going to say australia because you're no, small on your
1: face no, no. nick uh, i don't
2: know which the top is oh no? microphone is America, microphone Canada? no no france and greece france has been a very big prescriber for a really? very long time yep so globally get your french friends onto this program as well the
0: only thing i i oh, know i won't mention something i know about this um now thank you so much EpiPen and dr nick I would love to mention a really interesting event that's going on. Um, and this is the 10th Trevor Anderson seminar and Q&A. It's put on by Peter Mack. One of the hosts of, uh, this seminar Mm. is, uh, Dr. Doolittle, otherwise known as, what's his name? The director of psychosocial oncology at the Peter McCallum Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Cancer Um, Centre. Dr. Dr. Stephen (laughs) Allen. and the topic is my cancer's being looked after. What about the rest of me? It looks to be like a really interesting seminar. It's on Monday the 14th, which is tomorrow, World Diabetes Day. Uh, 6 till 7.30 seminar and discussion, 5.45 to 6 refreshments. You've got to book. And you should have booked by um, Friday. But eh. um, And uh, if you want information, I reckon just Google Peter Mack and uh, the uh, Trevor Anderson seminar, but um, pamela. Emory at dot that's pamela at peter, at peter if you send her an email saying i would like to rsvp helen garners talking lisa briggs todd harper it look this seem this would be a really really good uh seminar to uh to get to if you're interested coming up we'll be speaking with peter coleman and gordon bunyan about world diabetes day and a whole lot more
2: you're listening to a podcast from community radio 3 triple in melbourne australia
0: and as we we're just saying we've had blippers with microphones before oh this is what happens when you walk away uh, epipen from the studio for a month and you know you let somebody else fill in for you i've forgotten what buttons to push gordon and peter thanks so much for coming into the studio Thanks for having us. It's very nice to be here. Yeah, nice to, uh, to have you in. Now, Peter, I might, uh, I might throw to you first. You're the Director of Endocrinology and Diabetes. Just to give people a flavour for what you do,
3: what does that mean? So, uh, at the Royal Melbourne, we have uh, a lot of inpatients. Actually, a, a fact for you that uh, might knock your socks off is that uh, over 30% of people in the hospital at any one time have got diabetes. So, uh, we're responsible for trying to make sure they get see. excellent care because diabetes can complicate every other problem that they've got. So uh, we run all that service. We also have a number of clinics which we, uh, we see people from the community with diabetes on requests from people like Nick to uh, assist them to, to look after diabetes. Uh, I, we, we have a research uh, unit where we're doing uh, researching a whole lot of new drugs and new treatments for people with diabetes we uh, have a big diabetes education department for the, with our nurses, expert nurses, to uh, teach people about diabetes. And um, we, of course, are training the next generations mm-hmm. of uh, diabetes specialists. Mm-hmm. So um, that's a bit of a, a, a snapshot of what happens day to day.
0: Big job. What are the, what, in your mind, what are the big issues confronting diabetes and the care of people with diabetes today?
3: well the biggest issue is that, that diabetes is is totally overwhelming the health system essentially and and you can't really there's no argument against that so some of the facts and figures um, that are coming out for world diabetes day that one in 11 adults have diabetes about an, uh, about half uh, half uh, uh, as many people again who are known to have diabetes are, are not diagnosed yet
0: oh hang on let me just underline that yeah uh, did you say what, half of the people with diabetes don't know they have diabetes? Exactly
3: right, and um, and so they may not have. They may have just minor symptoms which they're, they're ignoring, um, or that that they just um, have have just not got round to going to the doctor. And unfortunately, at that stage, they're starting to accumulate Mm. problems that are associated with the diabetes that can really influence their life uh, going down the track. I might throw to Gordon. You had a comment
4: about that. Yeah, that's type 2 diabetes Mm. as well. You know, this is one of the big problems with type 2 diabetes, that you're going to have it for a long time, and the first time you realise that uh, there's a problem is when you have a problem. Mm -hmm. But type 1 diabetes, which... uh, is more likely to start at a younger age you know you've got it because if you're
0: not treated you just die mm. in fact gordon i might ask you this question because you, you touched on it when we we're in the green room that um diabetes type one and type two are actually two separate diseases under the same or disorders under the same banner and that causes a lot of confusion
4: yeah, well, Peter's better uh, equipped to talk about the, the, the differences, of course. But, yes, from a if you like, from a, 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 a an advocacy point mm. of view, that is one of the big issues because uh, I'll give you a, an example, if I may. Um, some years ago when I was on the board in New South Wales, we started a foundation uh, to raise money for research. And we put together a program which was we thought we, we've got to make an impact uh, and and it was Let's Arrest the Silent Killer because of this issue that people were walking around with diabetes and not realizing they had it. The type 1 diabetes community was up in arms because they the parents particularly were quite right to complain that uh, a child or a young person with diabetes, type 1 diabetes is not going to walk around without knowing that they've got it. So there are those sorts of things, so you've got to be very careful about the way in which you send the message out there. It, it's really quite difficult.
2: So how would a type 1, so a young person, how would they present to their doctor? What would, what would they go to saying some of their symptoms were?
3: Well, it's usually a very acute presentation that uh, there's, there can be weight loss, a lot of thirst, going to the toilet a lot, um, and in very young children, just um, failure to thrive, just their, their extremely unwell um they can get very sick get a thing called ketoacidosis where uh, their blood sugar goes very high and their blood gets very acid they can get really really sick and can die from that in other countries they do die from that still quite frequently not in this country thankfully
2: uh, so they would be prescribed mm-hmm. insulin straight away
3: uh yep, yep. Uh, insulin is a life life-saving uh, treatment um really going back into the 1920s uh people and before people with type 1 diabetes used to be starved basically for mm. for years and survived for a few years but it wasn't a very happy existence
0: and the presentation of somebody with type 1 diabetes usually somebody young it's very very acute <clears throat> and then you want to contrast that to somebody with type 2 diabetes who can walk around with it for years and not know they have it so what sort of things would bring them to a doctor's attention
3: so, so adults will usually present, they can present with infection, they can present with those, those symptoms. There's, also, there's a, a, a program by which um, if people have a certain set of other problems such as high blood pressure, high cholesterol, increased weight, the doctors will, will as a matter of course check them for diabetes, mm-hmm. do a, a, a blood test. Or a test called a, a blood test now called a hemoglobin A1C. Mm. And a lot of people will just be found to have diabetes without any specific symptoms. Mm. Coincidentally. Coincidentally. Right.
0: Now, I want to bring you back to the research because this is, a, this is an area that's moving ahead rapidly. What are some of the new developments that are, that are sort of, we're looking at five, say, five years away of being implemented?
3: So let's let's deal with type one diabetes first. Um, so with type one diabetes, we now actually have the ability to identify people before they actually get the condition. So we have blood tests for antibodies to the pancreas. We have trials now that are trying to uh, to give give to people who are antibody positive, don't yet have diabetes, to prevent them getting diabetes. That's very exciting.
0: Whoa, 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 whoa. hang on. So, you, so you, you can predict if somebody's going to get type
3: 1 diabetes? Yep. So we know what the, what the so let's just backtrack a moment. Yeah. So type 1 diabetes is a, what we call an autoimmune disease. So there's a genetic predisposition and people who, who are, uh, in people who are going to get it. Then something happens in the environment, something that we don't know a whole lot about, honestly, and then we can detect abnormalities in their blood. We can detect antibodies to parts of the, the cells that make insulin. So a simple blood test, we can detect antibodies. We know that person's then got a risk of developing diabetes within five years. So this is really fascinating.
0: So what percentage or what fraction of people who have those antibodies actually go on to develop type 1 diabetes?
3: So it's that's a very good question. and we, we uh, So at this stage, the research suggests that virtually all of them will, but it takes some of them 20 years. So, right. But if you have a number of those different antibodies, it's at least 50% over five years. So it gives us a population where we can actually test interventions to see whether it makes a difference.
0: And are any of those interventions looking promising? They're,
3: they're in clinical trials. There's been ones that... that, that look promising that that are having further questions asked about them but ask me today can we prevent type 1 diabetes? Unfortunately I have to say no but we're on the way.
0: And who do you screen? I mean you would, you're not screening every child for type 1 diabetes?
3: We're not but uh, so at the moment what we do is we screen first degree relatives of people with type 1 diabetes because we already know that they've got a, a, about a three percent risk of getting it. If you're in the general population you've got a point three percent so it's ten it, it's it's a whole lot less. So we can screen. So if I test 100 uh, first degree relatives of Gordon, say, I'll probably find two or three of those who've got levels of antibodies who are at an increased risk of diabetes. Right.
0: You know, what, what, what is coming back to my mind is I remember in medical school, which is a long time <laughs> ago, uh, you know, and I, I remember asking the question is there a genetic risk of, of uh, type 1? People said, no, don't be silly, there's no genetic risk. And clearly yeah. that professor was wrong. <laughs>
3: Well, there's a genetic risk of both types of diabetes, as it turns out. Oh, really? Probably stronger in type 2, except that we don't know all the genes. In type 1 diabetes, we probably do know most of the genes now.
0: So in in type 1 diabetes, you've got antibodies against the pancreas, and so the pancreas produces insulin, and if the pancreas gets inflamed or doesn't work, no insulin, diabetes. What happens in type 2? Because it's not as simple as that.
3: No, it's a very different story in type 2 and that's why Gordon's quite right. They, they just happen to be called the same name because they both have elevated blood sugar but um, it turns out that the causation is totally different. In type 2 diabetes, it's more the case of the, the body continues to make insulin actually will make more insulin sometimes than, than people without right. but there is resistance to the action of that insulin. So uh, people need... Uh, they, they, their bodies make more and more insulin and ultimately they can't make enough and that's when they get diabetes.
0: Why do their bodies become resistant to the insulin?
3: Well that's again a very good question and I think to be honest we would have to say that we, we don't actually know, because we don't know the genes we actually don't know that, that whole part of the story yet Right. and when we do know that part of the story maybe we'll be able to uh, treat type 2 diabetes a bit more successfully.
2: You know, I think you've answered my question. It was about the genetic testing, but I've heard it's incredibly hard and a very difficult gene to identify. So we're going to be
0: testing more people for type 1 and for type 2. We're looking at some new treatments for type 1 to prevent the pancreas getting inflamed. What are some of the other developments in the management of diabetes? Because I've heard things about continuous pumps and about patches and things like that.
3: Absolutely. So those are things that are, are here and are reality. So we have the patch, is what you're talking about is continuous glucose monitoring. So we can put just a little needle under the skin of these people. They put it in themselves. And that checks their blood sugar every five minutes. Um, so we just get a continuous reading of the person's blood sugar. It's very radical um, information, actually, because previously people prick their finger, and, and which hurts a lot, squeeze the blood out, put it in a machine, and, and that gives them the result. They might do that four times a day. They might do that six times a day. They might do it eight times a day. But there's a lot of space in between when you've got no idea what's going on. This is rev- revolutionary. Now, the next thing is that you can connect that up to an insulin pump which then, and the, the the blood sugar level tells the pump how much insulin to give. You've got the start of a of an artificial pancreas, and we have that. We have a thing called the hybrid closed loop, which um, is going into trials. It's just been approved by the FDA. One of the the uh, the models, and it's going into trial in Australia. We're hoping to start in February.
0: I'm I'm <laughs> absolutely blown away by that. Does it involve an app?
3: <laughs> There's lots of apps. <laughs>
0: So for the first time, one of my
1: patients came in the other day, had this sort of disc thing on the underneath of her arm and waved a little electronic device that's over right. it. looked like a tiny iPod and there was a readout of her sugar. Um, this is what you're talking about, so the sort of continuous available readings of blood sugar.
3: That's the latest, that, that's the latest one called the flash meter. There have been a few other devices that have been around now for a few years. That one doesn't actually connect up to a pump. But it, it's fantastic information, yeah, as you say. The, peop- the person they they swipe their meter over that over the disc tells them what their blood sugar is now at this moment, tells them whether it's going up or down, and tells them what it's been for the last that eight hours. Incredible that, information. That is incredible. But this might sound like a dumb question, but
0: um, can you monitor? Uh, st- minute-by-minute minute glucose with, uh, non invasively, just by having like a little, you know, like if you've got a pulse oximeter, we can take somebody's oxygen level, surely you should be able to take yeah. the glucose
3: level. Yeah, it's not a dumb question at all. And, and, um, and yes, we would all think that that should be possible, but it turns out to be pretty difficult. There was a thing a few years ago called a gluco watch, which uh, people wore on their wrist. Yeah. And um, it had two electrodes on the back of it, and it actually sucked... Uh, fluid through the pores of the skin, and then <laughs> measured the glucose on that. You're joking, yeah? And it worked, um, but it also made big holes and gave people big rashes. And I had a few people who used it for a while, but it. So and there's been nothing since. There was another thing that w- was on the market, which actually, as far as I could see, never worked at all, and was just sort of some sort of confidence trick. But uh, but it's not. There's there's some very clunky devices that might work, but uh, as for something that people just use day to day, unfortunately not.
1: So, uh, Gordon's sitting here looking the picture of health this is radio so you can't develop I can tell you um, I, I don't have a huge number of diabetic patients but a lot of them don't look as fit and healthy as you do Gordon but f- f- from, you, from your perspective as someone who has diabetes what are some of the biggest challenges how does it affect your life
4: uh, well uh, it, it affects it in every way and uh, um, because the only way I stay alive is by having an injection or several injections actually a day Um, it's completely artificial. So all the things that one does normally, like uh, eating, going for a walk or a run, you have to be careful about the balance of the amount of food you've eaten and the amount of insulin you've had and then the amount of exercise you do. Stress... Affects it as well, and people are affected in all sorts of different ways too. So, I may be um, just—I'm lucky, perhaps, that I've had um, um, uh, good genes. In fact, but um, I've also—I took the view uh, when I was diagnosed 40 years ago that I was going to live my life uh, normally. Uh, and that I wasn't going to have any complications because I'd read about it. I knew that you could go blind or lose limbs or feelings, all sorts of things. And every every time I hear a new complication, I say, you didn't tell me about that the first time. I, I, the, oh, it's the, it's, now it's the teeth, you know, it's all sorts of things. Um, so th- the fact that it's an artificial mechanism to stay alive it means that the adjustments that you have to make and the care you have to take is is particular but it's um, it, it, I mean uh, with great respect to the medical profession uh, and and uh, and that includes nurses too I must say but uh, um, but uh, it, it, the, the view is you know, if you follow the rules it'll be okay and really that's that's partly true and I suppose having been aware that complications were an issue um, I had a an uncle who had polio when he was a young man at my age when i was diagnosed he was diagnosed with polio and he was badly affected but he lived lived he was my inspiration um so i i sort of i tested a lot my doctor would not allow me to have a blood glucose machine when they first came out in those days we were testing urine in a in a in a test tube because he thought I was too obsessive and he was probably right. <laughs> um, uh, but, but it meant that my, I kept my levels pretty normal but the risk of that, of course, was hyperglycemia and mm. and uh, and until a few years ago I, I sort of didn't acknowledge that that was a pretty serious complication as well. So it's balance, uh, it's perseverance, but the most important thing for people with diabetes and for those who are caring for them is that you're never going to get it right all of the time and you've got to tolerate some failures.
2: So I remember working in ED and there was often some young people that would come in and they just ignored it. They didn't want to know about it. They wouldn't take their insulin. Time and time and time they were coming in and being admitted for non-compliance. Is, is that still the case? Are there still people ignoring it and trying not to want to accept it?
4: Well, Peter's going to be able to give you much better statistics on that than than me, but... <laughs> Um, Yeah, I was... I I think it's a real issue and it brings the psychology in. So I've been sitting on the board of Diabetes Australia Research Trust for a long time. And when I first came in, all of our money was going into basic science. We were looking for the cure. But while that was happening, I knew of another person who'd given a lot of time and effort and raised a lot of money but whose daughter died of complications. And I went, my God, you know, what are we doing? We have to keep people well uh, while uh, we wait for the cure. So... Uh, we, we started looking at um, research into psychological issues. So education, but psychology generally is a pretty important issue because it affects the way in which you respond. So I, I met a young woman and we were both about both about the same age. Sorry, we'd both had diabetes about the same time. She was a lot younger than me, diagnosed at five. And so I said, why have you got these complications? Uh, she said, oh, well, when I was 14, I just decided... Not to have my diabetes uh, not to have my insulin, I, I was diagnosed at eighteen, and it was always my problem. My parents weren 't involved in it really i couldn 't believe it, but she said oh it was mum 's diabetes i didn 't have to worry about it so that 's an issue. I mean the impact of a young person mm-hmm. going through their childhood and then into puberty having to deal with injections and restrictions there are enough of them without it so it 's going to be an issue, and I think what we haven 't done over the years is to recognize. Um, both for parents and for um, young people, the psychological impacts.
3: Yes, I I totally agree with everything uh, Gordon said. And I think the reality, and and just to to correct uh, the lingo there, Epi... um, we 're not using the compliance term anymore um, it 's been uh, cut out of our, our lingo um, but um, it 's it's now called adherence yeah, yes. the, the, um, but the, the the reality is is that person um, who or those people who are coming in like that, so they were getting put into hospital, given a lecture about controlling their their blood sugar levels better, and you know you should go out and look after yourself. The reality is, is that 's just a total waste of time. those people are not. Ready to have anything any conversation about their blood sugar level at all they 've got a, a problem that Dr. Mel needs to fix mm. um, before we can move ahead mm. and I think that's that, that um, although uh, Gordon uh, says that health professionals or, or maybe he won 't but other people say that all we worry about is the numbers it 's not true we 're totally aware that this is a, a, an incredibly difficult thing to have, and that um, that, that you know, we 've got to actually look after the whole person, and the numbers are uh, not the only thing that matters. Well, I guess one of the
0: things about diabetes too is it's is it's a multi-system disorder. It doesn't just affect one part of a person's body, say like a, a, like a dermatological complaint or a gastroenterological complaint. Yeah. It, 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 every single organ is potentially affected. And I guess that must, I would think in your mind, um, Peter, make you think more systemically about the person not just about the disorder which is always the danger you know when you're looking at numbers and printouts of you know results you, you, you often try and chase that try and get that number lower or that number higher but in front of you is a person who's got a life and, you know, wanting to do stuff. And maybe they are at that age when they're, you know, wanting to rebel against stuff and they haven't quite sorted yeah. out where they want to be in the world. Yeah. Now, Nick, just to come to you, you said it's not adherence. That's interesting. Why isn't it adherence?
1: Uh, th- so this is a, a terminology question and compliance is an awful word that we used to use where patients complied with the orders of the doctor. Uh, clearly a very outdated yeah. concept of medicine. But adherence is a, a fashionable word which I don't like because it implies Stickiness it implies sticking to what someone else has told you to do, and I much prefer the term concordance, which implies agreement between patient and doctor—a concord. So concordance is the term which the the really uh, linguistically challenged prefer.
0: Now I can can one up you. Now, so I know this is a diabetes section, (laughs) but I can one up you on this because there's a famous paper. By myself and Steve, <laughs> which no one's read. <laughs> yes, I don't know that one. We, we, I don't think anybody else does. We actually called the idea of a patient and a doctor coming to an agreement alignment, that you align so, with a certain way of doing stuff. Because it's not just about say, – say you're my patient, Nick, and I say, Nick, You know, what do you reckon about taking this tablet? It's not just about you agreeing. It's about – you know you having the financial resources to do stuff, you having the psychological capacity... Um you know, the opportunity within your family to do that as well. So I, I think
1: that's a lovely word, yeah. and it also allows the opposite when it doesn't work of malignment. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> another paper. <laughs> I've got another
1: paper. <laughs> but, a, but an important point with, uh, with uh, uh, diabetics who are non adherent, non concordant, we know that there is no 100% concordance with any medication yep. in any system in medicine and with antipsychotics for people with schizophrenia. The non concordance rate is up to 70% at 12 months whether it's with statins or any other treatment. I had a patient on anti-rejection drugs for a major um, hematological malignancy. He mm. just decided to stop them because he mm. was sick of taking them mm. and ended up with overwhelming mm. infection and nearly died. But because people do this, it's not because people are stupid, it's not because diabetics are somehow more rebellious than others, it's because people are human beings and they hate being medicalized and at some point they get sick of it.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, we were that I'm interested in is the meaning of an illness. And, you know, just taking a tablet every day or having an injection every day, sure, there are side effects and it's a hassle and there are logistic issues, but it's also the meaning as well of, you know, taking this tablet means I have something and what do I think of that? So there's a whole psychology behind it, as Gordon was saying, you are listening to 3RRR, this is radiotherapy, it is 10.40 in 29 seconds. We were going to have a break, but the conversation is rattling along so well, we're not going to, we're going to keep going. Gordon... What do you reckon are the the major issues facing people with diabetes in Australia today?
4: Can I, before I answer that, can sure. I just uh, language is really important. Uh, and uh, so, if I may be, I mean, i, I i've often criticised. Uh, I sat on a board with a whole lot of academics and professors and doctors, <laughs> and uh, often got myself into trouble. But um, one of the things that we we looked at was this whole question of when you're a patient. So people doctors particularly and medical professionals talk about patients all the time but people with diabetes say actually I'm only a patient when I sit either in front of you in your surgery or when I'm in hospital but if you t- call me a patient afterwards well patients are reliant on somebody else to help them they need help and I think it doesn't only affect the person with diabetes it affects the per- the person in the team um, and I think you know, Peter would agree with this, that the team is actually a pretty... It sounds a bit glib, mm-hmm. but you need to be part of a team in managing diabetes it, because both sides really have to al- learn how the particular person, the patient, when they're in your surgery, mm-hmm. uh, deals with it.
1: And, t- Gordon, are you a person with diabetes or are you a diabetic?
4: Well, that was my next point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I, there's a, so, so Diabetes Australia and the International Diabetes Federation has a policy that you don't use diabetic as a noun. So I was about to pick you up on describing people as being, as being a diabetic. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, a, that's an issue. So what are the main things? Uh, I think, um, well, um, well, let me just say that with all of the, the I mean, the size of the, the diabetes population, it's now at 300 and something million in the world, and everybody talks about the numbers all the time. And I think that in itself is, uh, I'm a bit on the edge here, because the board of IDF didn't actually agree completely with me on this one, but um, that talking always about the size of the problem is an issue to address it. So people go, it's too big, we can't handle it, we'll do something else. And that's certainly the way legislators would, would tend to look at it without saying, if we don't do something sm- in, in, in small increments, then we're going to have an unmanageable problem down the track. So one thing is the effectiveness of lobbying, one of the other areas, I think, is uh, this, this problem of, of using diabetes to describe two different uh, a- areas. So uh, on the advocacy side, those are some areas to look at. From a, 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 a day-to-day living, uh, I think education is absolutely critical, uh, and then looking at the ways in which you get that message across to the person with diabetes. But for people with type 1 diabetes, particularly young people, uh, educating their parents is actually pretty important as well. Uh, we, had, we ran a session at the uh, International Diabetes uh, Congress in Vancouver uh, last year looking at the difference in age of diagnosis. So um, uh, Renzo Scabilia uh, from diabetes Australia, Victor- uh, diabetes Australia and I have a view that we were both diagnosed later in our lives and our attitude to our diabetes is completely different to my friend I was talking about before who was diagnosed at four and we wondered whether that was an issue uh, and we, we, we wouldn't want to be critical of parents but at all because it's a shocking thing to have to manage but how do you help parents deal with that sort of thing because getting that, the right messages through to them because they're the... They're the, he- they're the main health team for, mm-hmm. for a young person with diabetes. So those education issues are critical. I think the other side of it is just dealing with the fact that it's so unpredictable. Um, you, you know, even with uh, these lovely new test uh, units and pumps which you can bolus and do all sorts of lovely things with, People still run into problems because of of um, uh, the unpredictable nature of it, and it's that unpredictability that is probably the most significant problem. I'm not sure, Peter, whether in your experience that that would be uh, your your feeling as well. I know my, my partner, Gerry, in in the in the green room, and she would probably say similar things because of the difficulty. There's a real impact on families as well, and all of those things need to be considered apart from the patient and that's where diabetes organizations
0: come into into play well, you know, with education I, I was just telling um the team outside in the green room uh that uh, one of the kids at um, my daughter's school was doing a uh, presentation on diabetes and the effect it had and the presentation was – I mean, I learned a lot from the presentation. It was quite interesting. You know, as, a, as a doctor, as a parent, you know, I, you know, I thought I knew it all. And yet, you know, just, just simple little things that this kid was talking about were quite powerful. And, you know, and this is me as, you know, as, a, as an elderly doctor. And yet he was telling this whole class about the things I can't do and the things I can do. And, you know, don't think that I can't do this. Just understand that I might need to do X, Y and Z first. And I, I was actually quite moved by that because you know, wh- you know, I'm an educated person. I should know about this. I'm a doctor, but yet I was learning new stuff. And here are all these kids in his class learning the same sorts of things. And you know, I spoke to a, a couple of them afterwards. I said, "Yeah, yeah, we understand that. We get that." I was just it was kind of normalising it. And I thought, you know, that is a great place to start in classrooms. And are there programs that go out to schools and do this sort of thing, Gordon?
4: Uh, I'm, i actually I'm not I'm not i haven 't been involved in the domestic diabetes organizations mm. for a long time, so i couldn 't answer that particularly, but I think Diabetes Victoria, for example, yeah. does have that sort of uh, education uh, that 's ongoing. I yeah. think that yeah. they 're doing all sorts of things and Peter 's on the board, so he, he could answer that better than i
3: they do The, the main focus is actually helping teachers to yeah. in, in dealing with with students who have diabetes um, but um, just like to pick up on your the comment about um, you know People with diabetes can do anything and um, I, I recently had the opportunity to, uh, to go to the Institute of Sport with about 50 young people with type 1 diabetes because um, they were interested in um, running marathons and doing triathlons and stuff and you can work it all out, you can plan it all but the thing I want to tell you is there was a guy there called Sebastian Sasseville who's a Canadian with type 1 diabetes, got about the same age as Gordon, who uh, has climbed Mount Everest since he had diabetes, has uh, run across the Sahara Desert. I mean, he's crazy. This guy, <laughs> uh, and um, and what's the other thing he did? He uh, oh, he ran across Canada too. That's just you know, not far. Just and uh, all this uh, <laughs> with cold. type one diabetes. So um, you know, and I have people who, who fly airplanes, and there are are league footballers. are you know, they're, they're, there's a guy uh, who won all the gold medals in Sydney. Um, his name, I've forgotten. The American guy. Yeah. So, so there, you know, type one diabetes um, is you know you can literally do anything. Can't actually fly a jumbo jet at the moment, but it's um, not too many other things. Were you saying yeah. something about scuba diving outside? Yeah, that's well. So um, th- there's been traditionally a. Um, a, 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 a really a ban on people with type 1 diabetes yeah. scuba diving because of the risk of having hypoglycemia sure. while underwater the risk that that might be for them and for their buddy basically yeah. but uh, a number of of international groups have looked at that and defined sort of rules that can actually make it safer and we're just reviewing the australian diabetes society um, position on that at the moment
0: how things have changed since I was a medical student i mean it was a long time ago but wow so flying potentially scuba diving running across canada yeah. What the physiology of that, of trying to figure out how, I mean, that really, I mean, what would he, he would have to sit down beforehand and map out every meal and pretty much every injection, no?
3: Yep. Oh, yes, of course. And and, um, and, and uh, this is where continuous glucose monitoring right. obviously makes has a huge impact because essentially you can work out what happens day to day and what happens in times of stress and that sort of thing and, and get it right. But there's still a degree of, of um, unpredictability. Gordon's quite right about that, but uh, yeah. Yeah fascinating Peter Gordon
0: thank you so much for coming in we could obviously speak for hours about this and we almost have but we've got to leave a bit of time for uh Dr Nick to tell us about the shingles vaccine he'll be coming up after this
1: just listen to this
0: I love this radio station. It is just so great to come in and to speak to interesting people. And speaking of interesting people, Dr Nick
1: Shingles. Yes, a topic here which is relevant to the overwhelming majority of our listeners um, because this is for people 70 to 79 years old. Uh, the new vaccine sorry did you say 70
0: to 79 70
1: to 79
0: That's, that's, not that's a
1: well, excuse me because if it's not for you it might be for your parents or for your
0: grandparents in, in fact my father-in-law <laughs> is uh, sitting
1: outside so before you leap to conclusions it's relevant because we need to remind the older people that this vaccine is now on the PBS so since the 1st of November the government has kindly decided to subsidise the shingles vaccine so what is us backtrack and talk about what is shingles um so Epi come on you can do this what what shingles
2: Oh, Come on. So, Epi um, is moving to the microphone. She's okay. oh, looking up Wikipedia. It's chickenpox <laughs> in adults, but we all carry it in our spine, in our basal ganglia.
1: Very good. So, Epi is so spot on with that one. <laughs> Could so, you just repeat that again? So, we get chickenpox as a child, or we used to prior to vaccination. And um, chickenpox is one of those viruses that we don't ever get rid of. It lives on in our body, and as Epi points out, it lives in our spinal nerves, and it can just sit there quietly for years, decades. But when it comes back on us, it doesn't come back as chickenpox, it comes back as shingles. What is, I've always wondered, why does that happen? Why does it just come back um, as chickenpox? Uh, because the um, original infection, we've never met this virus before. We have no antibodies, no immunity. We get a generalized infection, which uh, is where we get spots all over. That's chickenpox. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: the virus then lives in the nerve cells. There's a certain amount of circulating antibody and immunity which uh, lives in harmony with this virus. But when that antibody level drops a bit too low... It then migrates down one or two nerves, which is why we only get it in some part of the body, a so-called dermatome, Ah. which is what shingles is. So it's a chickenpox outbreak in a small part of the body in the skin. Ah. And shingles varies from a mild rash that's not too bad to a really very nasty, severe infection with the potentially very unpleasant consequence of what's called
0: post-herpetic neuralgia, pain at the site where the rash once was now can i just pick you up on that post herpetic means after herpes because it's herpes zoster is the virus so it's one of the herpes group of But of it's not the same as the herpes simplex virus on your lip or cold sore or uh, on your genitals no so there's a whole group of herpes
1: viruses mm. and so the old joke goes what's the difference between herpes and true love one lasts forever herpes lasts yes, forever yes, 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 exactly yes, yes. so they, the, all this group of viruses have the same characteristic they live on in the body after the original infection seems to have subsided ah,
0: that's true they do right yeah. so you get uh shingles in a dermatome that is a area of innervation of the skin by one particular nerve yeah one
1: half of the body so it occurs on the right side or the left side so you never see shingles bilaterally so it's only ever on one side or the other of the body which is one of the hallmarks of shingles um so But uh, it's it's a funny old infection that can be unpleasant but it can also veer into this very nasty consequence which is post-herpetic neuralgia.
0: So tell us about that.
1: um, Which is pain where the rash was. So the the virus grows in the nerves that supply the skin and those nerves remain jangled and sensitised after the virus has gone. And that effect can last for months or even years. It's more common in older people, more common in isolated elderly people and can be a very severe painful condition so one of the reasons we want to try and prevent shingles is to stop the consequence of post-herpetic neuralgia can i
0: just ask you a question about post-herpetic neuralgia, neuralgia and i realize this is getting away from the vaccine but i remember years ago that one this was years ago so they probably don't do it anymore but we used to treat post we used to treat post-herpetic neuralgia that's right correct with capsicum um cream yes. capsicum. do you still do that no okay, no. <laughs> okay.
1: like, like most of the straight things straight you were taught down. as a medical student it it no is longer right. applies okay because <laughs> i was wondering
0: why caps- okay sorry um,
1: so we can treat shingles there are antiviral drugs which work quite well the sooner you start them the better if someone develops shingles we try to get them onto the antivirals within 24 hours Certainly within three days. That reduces the nastiness of the rash, reduces the risk of post-herpetic neuralgia, but not hugely. It doesn't stop it completely. So, if we can stop people getting shingles, stop them getting the infection in the first place, that would be very nice. A vaccine has been produced which boosts that natural immunity that we mostly have, because nearly all of us as adults who weren't. Uh, vaccinated as children because people are adults now the vaccine didn't exist have natural uh, antibodies to the varicella zoster virus mm-hmm. we almost all picked it up even if we don't remember getting chicken pox we almost certainly were exposed to it and have the virus have the antibodies right. so we can now vaccinate we can boost that immunity it is not perfect uh, it's a vaccine that provides some protection against shingles probably reduces your risk of getting shingles around 50% but if you then do get it, you get a milder case reduces the risk of this nasty painful side effect post-herpetic neuralgia and probably reduces that around about half as well Mm. so it ain't perfect but it's the best thing that we've got, it was very expensive it was around 250 bucks a pop this vaccine Um, and people can still choose to buy it if they want to between the ages of 60 and 70 but as of 1st of November, For the 70 to 79-year-olds, the vaccine is now free at your general practitioner. So you have to be 70 to 79? Yes, they've chosen that age group because over the age of 80, the effectiveness of this vaccine is poorer, um, and they reckon the best bang for buck is in that group. There's a catch-up program for the up to 79-year-olds. As of 2022, it will just be a standard vaccination once you turn 70, but over the next few years, allowing older adults to be vaccinated as a catch-up program
2: Um, Dr Nick, would you like to comment about it being a live vaccine and who might not be able to have it
1: A beautiful question as well. Uh, Thanks, Epi, because it is a live attenuated vaccine. So it sounds a bit scary to people sometimes, live vaccine. Give me real virus. But we've done this before. The old oral polio virus was a live attenuated vaccine. The measles virus vaccine that uh, kids get is a live attenuated vaccine. This is not a new concept. Mm -hmm. It's a, a live virus that's been modified so that it doesn't cause nasty infection, it just causes immunity. However, because it is a live agent it's not suitable for people who are severely immunosuppressed so if you are on major uh, cancer type treatments if you have full-blown aids some severe immunosuppressive condition like that then this vaccine is not suitable and obviously you consult
0: with your doctor first before you've got it because they're the person that's going to be given it to you
1: I was talking to a psychiatrist who has chronic lymphocytic leukemia uh, just yesterday, and uh, he was saying, I'm going to have to talk to my oncologist before I get this vaccine.
0: I thought, good idea. Mm, <laughs> very good idea. Let's just tell us, Nick, how does, I mean, I'm fascinated by the health economics of this. How does the government just all of a sudden go, ping, let's give, you know, a shingles vaccine to the seventy. 70- To 79-year-olds? I mean, where does that
1: come from? Because they have boffins. They have people with abacuses who do calculations, (laughs) and they say treating this illness um, costs X, vaccinating
0: will cost 70% of X. Let's vaccinate. But sure, there must be some lobby group that that comes up and says, or or is it all due to SAGE research? Uh, sage and research in the same sentence Hmm.
1: Um, I'm not involved in the uh, that's not a committee I have anything to do so I can't comment on the process but we know governments aren't keen on spending money unless someone can convince them that it's worth doing Um, it makes sense to me that any financial modelling of this would say that preventing shingles is going to be cost effective compared to treating both shingles and its consequences Mm.
2: Um, I did see some graphs where the age distribution of people getting shingles is, is a spike between the ages of sixty and eighty. So that is possibly why they've factored it in. And that post hepatic neuralgia is horrible. It's really horrible. We, we, who our our pain physician who's been on here, she turned sixty and she heard her vaccine that minute that she's on a birthday. It was Midnight. her birthday present to herself. <laughs> so, and the other thing I learnt was that the minute you get the shingles infection is that's when the, the nerve damage is being done. Right. That, but not at the end of it or during it, but the minute you get it.
0: At, you know, I, every time I come on this show, I just learn something. I learn heaps. It's, just a, it's a fantastic education for me. This should be continuing professional development points for me. I'm <laughs> lobbying the, the, the college of psychiatrists <laughs> to let me claim this hour on a Sunday morning. <laughs> Thank you so much to all our guests. Thank you, Gordon. Thank you, Peter. EpiPen. Brilliant. Thank you for putting <laughs> my show together. <laughs> Dr. Nick, always wonderful having you uh, back on the show. You have been listening to Radiotherapy. Over in the studio to my left are the scientists from Einstein and Gogo. Um, you know, they're wearing their lab coats. They've got the scalpel in the pocket. <laughs> pencil protector. <laughs> um, they're going to be bringing you an hour of Einstein and Gogo. Fantastic show. Love it. We will be catching up with you next Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. And we will see you then.
2: Hi, this is Triple uh, R's own Adam Elliott. I'm responsible for Harvey Crumbit. and uh, God bless you all.
0: This has been a podcast from Free Triple R
3: 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.